Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hello, everybody. I wanted just to give you a quick reminder about going to patreon.com slash indoctrination, patreon.com slash indoctrination to become a supporter of the show, to be able to keep it going. Every bit counts and is truly useful and necessary. And so you will be doing a great service for yourself, for others, for future guests, for future listeners. Thank you so very much. Patreon.com slash indoctrination. Today on the show, we have Jeff. Jeff was born and raised as one of Jehovah's Witnesses in Northern California. As a witness, he spent 35 years devoted to Bible research using only witness-approved publications, attending three weekly meetings, and spending upwards of 70 hours each month spreading the Jehovah's Witness doctrine, trying to convert future members. His zeal for his beliefs led him as far as moving to Shanghai, China, to proselytize underground, an activity that is currently banned by the government. Jeff grew up identifying as gay in a religion that does not allow its members the ability to identify as part of the LGBTQ plus community. The constant bombardment of homophobic rhetoric being taught to believe being gay is a choice and is wrong, forced to come out to leaders in the congregation to confess thought crimes. Talk about 1984. I can't help but think of George Orwell when I hear about thought crimes. And pushed to confess, quote-unquote, sins. And told to pray the same-sex attraction away eventually caused so much self-loathing and depression that suicide seemed like the only option. In 2019, Jeff decided to come out to his friends and family and leave the Jehovah's Witnesses for good. Since leaving the organization, he's been on a journey of self-discovery unwinding deeply ingrained ideologies of sexuality and spirituality, instead learning to live authentically as a member of the LGBTQ community. He is focused on getting the truth about the Jehovah's Witnesses out to the general public and encourages anyone who identifies as LGBTQ in the Jehovah's Witnesses organization or in any similar high-control groups to find freedom and self-love as they live an authentic and truthful life. It was a pleasure to speak with Jeff. I'm so glad you get to hear him now. I am so happy to have Jeff on the show today. I know that the organization that Jeff was in is something that we've talked about in the past, but not from this perspective. And so I know this is something that affects a lot of people. And I think it's something that is good for us to talk about, to kind of grapple with and be aware of, and to understand the struggles for someone who is dealing with a lot of issues around, I guess, acceptance and being able to be yourself. And that that is the case for a lot of people in groups where there is a certain sense about what is the ideal kind of person according to the group or according to God. So Jeff, if you want to introduce yourself, like what you do and why, you know, you wanted to be on the show and then we'll start talking. My name is Jeff. I am 37 years old. I can't believe I live in California, which is where I was born and raised. 
And I currently work um, in the communications field as an executive assistant. And I just want to say thank you that you, you and your podcast were instrumental in me understanding some of the things that I was dealing with and kind of gave me a glimpse into like the situation that was coming up for me as I was exiting the religion of Jehovah's Witnesses. So you and your guests have been incredibly instrumental in helping me heal. So I just wanted to share my story because I think that it's important for people within the Jehovah's Witness community to hear as well as people on the outside, because I think it's something that people don't get a chance to hear. I think people think of us as kind or them rather as kind of um, harmless Christian sect that kind of bothers you on Saturday mornings, right? Knocking on your door, but there's a lot more to it than that, that I'd like people to understand. That would be really good. And yes, they do come to my door. You're right about that. I I think in part because they come to everyone's door, but also when they see the mezuzah, this Jewish symbol on the outside of my door, you would know better than I, but I feel like it's a target to try to save me. I think they think of it as more of an opportunity to have somebody to talk to. It's an external indicator that you are a spiritual person. So, and you know, I think a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses claim to have more of a connection with Judaism than to modern day Christianity like Catholicism because of the emphasis on the Hebrew scriptures. So worship the same God, the God of Abraham. I think they think there's a connection there. Hmm. Interesting. All right. So I'm curious just to hear about your experiences within it and what started to happen as you kind of emerged into who you are now. Right. So I was born into the organization. My parents converted in the 80s, 70s and 80s, respectively. And so I was raised as a Jehovah's Witness. I didn't really know anything other than that. My social community was, they were all Jehovah's Witnesses. You know, my friends were all Jehovah's Witnesses. My activities were Jehovah's Witness activities. It really wasn't strange at all. Like that was my normal. I would say things got a little more complicated for me in that when I was in grade school, I started to realize that I was different than what I expected a normal kid or a normal Jehovah's Witness kid to be like, in that I realized that my sexuality was not the same. And so that triggered me to be extremely fearful of being found out. It wasn't something that I felt comfortable sharing with my family or with anyone in my congregation because, I mean, I think at that age, I already knew that that was from the perspective of a witness that was wrong. And so I kind of, without understanding, you know, totally understanding what it means to be a gay person, I identify as a cisgendered gay man, but yeah, I mean, it was like very challenging trying to manage my feelings, manage my um, attractions, manage my interests, because I didn't want to be, you know, seen as too feminine or interested in things. Like when I was a kid, I liked to sometimes play with my friends Barbies, but uh, I would never tell my parents or never tell anyone else that I did that. It was challenging in that respect. So from a young age, I started to develop a sense of two identities, where I started to keep to myself the things that were true to me. And I started to build an external persona that I really built as I grew up. A lot of people talk about that, that when they're raised in a situation where they have to be a certain person, the kind of person that is acceptable in God's eyes, and also that they need to seem happy, that there is this, a lot of people will say to me, I have needed to find a way to find out which part of myself is true and real, and maybe how to merge the two parts, or how to divide out what was sort of the acting role and what was me. And was that put on you too, that you needed to not only seem straight, but you needed to seem fine and happy? Yes. So that was something I, I mean, I always knew when I was in the organization of Jehovah's Witnesses, I call it the organization now. (laughs) That was always something that was like, I understood as a prerequisite as a member now that I'm out looking at back, I realize how manipulative that is. 
they say that you have to exhibit the fruitages of the spirit. And I can't remember in Galatians, right? I can't remember all of them now. It's like a love, joy, peace, long suffering, kindness, goodness, etc. And there were many talks given by higher members in the organization that were, and I even had one for a very long time in a binder that I kept with me and would pull out and read sometimes a transcribed talk because it was something difficult for me, was that this idea that you were required to be joyful. And it was a separate feeling from happiness because happiness, they would say, is comes from like outside experience. Joy comes from within. And so it is an inner contentment that you exhibit on the outside. And if you don't have joy, there's something wrong with your spirituality. And so, yeah, looking back, it's like I had to be happy and perfect all the time, which in a way was a great mask for me to wear because it's simple, right? So it was an easy thing to to put on my face as an external, like for other people to see, but. Okay, so. How were gay people talked about and were they talked about? I avoided any topics around homosexuality or gay people because it made me uncomfortable growing. It was just a reminder of something that I was trying to pretend that didn't exist. But of course, you know, like I knew that it was not approved. There was a kind of, there's a lot of illustrations that they teach you how to when you're talking to a gay person or when you're talking to somebody who's an ally, right, at the door, they would say, like, use an illustration like, I hate the act of smoking, but I don't hate smokers. So it's the same to gay people. Like, I hate the act of homosexuality, but I don't hate the person. However, I did some research recently and on their online library, which is their archive of publications. And I only pulled a few articles that had kind of like disparaging titles, some dating back to the 50s, some as you know, recent as like 2013. Some of the words that I found were detestable, disgraceful, unnatural, obscene, loathsome, perverse, shameful, a plague, empty-headed, afflicted, immoral, deviant, unrighteous. And there's even comparisons to people that practice bestiality or that are sexual predators. Some correlations to people that have a proclivity towards being a sexual predator to the same as somebody that's gay, that they just have to work through that. And there's a lot, actually, which I found really fascinating. There's a lot of words and titles that talk about the gay propaganda and how we need to protect children from gay propaganda on television or media or through pornography or it's so I, I didn't realize, you know, like growing up, I thought that it didn't really they didn't really speak about the subject, but I'm actually shocked about how much material there is, which is the material that they haven't culled right from their libraries. So these are things they actively still agree with and are teaching. I've always been baffled by how people can see something, especially in a in an organization where there's the belief that God created all. Why would God create someone who is loathsome and obscene and a plague and an affliction? Is that made to made sense? Somehow it's like a God is according to some, you know, theologies, God doesn't make mistakes. So what is that about? Right. So I think that what they say, I mean, the, the, their teaching is based on the idea that mankind is under the control of Satan right now. And so the whole world is under the control, including governments and, you know, media, et cetera. Even other religions are controlled by Satan, the devil. And so his influence is to entice and trap people to go away from the original teachings of Jehovah God, the creator. The thing that I found confusing when I was reading some of these articles was the fact that they claim that homosexuality or being gay is a new phenomenon, but in so many of their writings, they also give evidence that, you know, these things are happening, like even in the Bible, 
like even in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, even actually with the Israelites, I believe there were some issues where they put temple prostitutes that were males and the Romans and the Greeks. And so I'm, I'm wondering, like, is that just a, you know, and, and it was accepted in those organizations and it isn't in this one. So I just, it was like, it was kind of a weird moment of like, I don't understand what the argument that they're trying to make is, but one of the things that actually really shocked me after I left was a talk by one of the governing body members who is the essentially the leader of the organization, Stephen Letts. And he gave a talk at one of the regional conventions, which is basically a, an annual event that all Jehovah's Witnesses globally will watch. And they will have all watched his speech. He said, because the idea is, you know, after Armageddon, there is a paradise new world where everybody is fixed of their sins and conditions, imperfections, including homosexuality is what they would say in the beginning. So, but in his talk, he illustrated that rather long that I think his words were, if a homosexual was resurrected, he will still have to make the decision and put in the work to change his behavior and his attitude to be acceptable to Jehovah, which was different than anything that's ever been written before. And so when I heard that, I was like angry and shocked because, you know, you're waiting for something to be fixed. And if you're in this organization, the idea that you won't be is like, was a little bit shocking to me. But even worse is I had found out a few weeks or a few months later that when he gave this talk, it was about a month or two after his gay nephew had committed suicide because he was shunned for being gay and he knew his nephew. So I feel like he chose to give this illustration. He chose to give the talk for a reason. It just was like extremely disgusting to me. I'm wondering about in particular your story too, where I wonder about your family and however much you feel comfortable sharing, please feel free and just your own trajectory and just what it was like for you. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I mean, truth be told, I, I just came out as a gay man this uh, last year. And I also left the organization in 2020 right at the of the pandemic. So it's kind of been a an interesting year for me. But so I did keep this false self, this fake Jeff, this fake personality for my own, I mean, my entire life, really. Um, I never spoke about this with anyone. I didn't feel comfortable. Sometimes they would say, like, if you have these, they call it inclinations towards same sex attraction, then you should talk to an elder in the congregation and they'll help you work through it. And to me, that just never felt sincere or I just didn't feel comfortable doing that. So I chose to not tell anybody. And I realized now that was really damaging to my psyche and to my emotional well-being because I look back at my life and I realize that kind of undercurrent of unhappiness was always there, even as a child. And now I can see it as the control that I had to be under to, or put myself under for so long to project as somebody I wasn't. And not only that, but also I had to actively hate that person. Wow, that's very powerful. I have had um, few inner, like few interactions, or I should say sexual interactions, or you know, things where I got in trouble with the congregation and self-reported myself to the elders, which in the organization leads to a judicial committee of three elders in a private room where you have to tell them what you did in like extreme detail. So they have a lot of personal questions and they take notes. You're not allowed to take notes and it's just you and them. And I realized, you know, it's, it's two of those times, you know, I had to tell them that I had an attraction to men and it's not a very open-minded organization. And so while they were kind, you know, enough, at the time, it was not a place where I felt safe or comfortable or acknowledged in any way. And in fact, in many of those instances, it's almost a requirement for you if you want to stay within the organization and not be disfellowshipped or um, excommunicated, mm -hmm. that you have to 
basically they'll they'll lead you in a series of questions such as do you feel sorry for what you did will you do it again do you think you'll do it again what do you think about this lifestyle what do you think about yourself in this lifestyle and so you're basically having to say i hate it no i hate it like i don't like this about me i wish that i wasn't this way so that kind of that's stuck with me for a long time and um and i think that like that feeling of guilt but also shame and hatred for myself like really pushed me into trying to be the best jehovah's witness i could be so if i could be uber spiritual and um go out in door-to-door work like the most and convert people and learn other languages and move to another country those things would counteract the feelings that i had of being kind of dirty and like broken really and so i did do those things and i think that eventually it led me to moving to china to live as a missionary there which was for a witness or for many people it's to the, it's the other side of the world right it's the end of the civilization like it's such a different place and especially because it's it's in the it's a country where witnesses are banned and so we didn't know a lot of activity of what was happening there and so that that was a, an appeal to me because it seemed like the ultimate sacrifice i would have to lose connections with my family and everything that makes me comfortable and safe and it felt like almost a little bit of martyrdom in a way yeah i mean i think it is i think a lot of people who push themselves to that degree to live in a, either a very kind of ascetic life without anything or go to a totally different culture there is some martyrdom it's almost like self-flagellation and kind of mm, spiritual purification because you're suffering and you've pushed yourself the hardest that's exactly how i felt and any time like i don't i can always speak for myself as somebody that has been through a few of these judicial committees but you know the after effects of them last for years because first you you are reminded of, about your mistake for and some of these mistakes it could be smoking a cigarette right or like drinking too much and somebody saw you you lose your ability to move through the congregation like everybody else you lose privileges in the congregation they take those from you they might announce your name on stage everyone knows you're going through a hard time and that that could last 6 months that's kind of like your sentence and then the guilt and shame of that really lingers with you especially if it has something to do with your you know your um identity like I, that's what i think was so difficult and challenging for me is any time i made a mistake to you know in their eyes it, it would really last for years afterwards and i would really like beat myself up about it which is just very challenging very challenging and when you say beat yourself up about it what did that mean what were the things that you were not only feeling but saying to yourself i mean i would turn down certain assignments given to me because i just would always say to myself like i'm not good enough like if only they knew i'm bad and you know god doesn't love me he couldn't otherwise i would have been fixed or like i would honestly <laughs> this sounds ridiculous to say now but i used to pray almost every day just to have this removed because like i said it's described as an affliction so like when you think of it as a sickness you think yeah maybe maybe i can do something you can be cured right And then when it didn't happen and luckily it didn't happen. Yeah. But when it didn't happen did you think you're not worthy of being cured? You know, when it didn't happen, I kind of came to a realization in my late 20s that I was like oh, this is just something I'm going to have to live with for the rest of my life and um I think it was that realization that sent me to China ultimately because I I realized that you know the witnesses they also um they get married really young because there's no you're not allowed to have sex before marriage and dating is for marriage so a lot of witnesses get married like right out of high school because they're kind of like missing out on that experience right and i quickly realized like i'm not going to be paired off like i will never have a partner 
And so I decided to move as far away as I could to just forget about it. Um, I kind of conceded to the fact that I would never be in love and I had never been in love, that I would never get married. I would never have anyone there to share anything with. And I was, it was a little hard to swallow because I had been so alone mentally and emotionally that, that this is just my life forever. Wow. Okay. So I think, you know, when you were talking before about how you were told, or, or it was said that if you were having these feelings, you would go to an elder and the elder would help you through it. And that seemed disingenuous. If you had done that, and I know you, you were in front of three, but if you had gone to th- that elder and had that meeting, what would have happened there? Well, I mean, actually, I can, I can tell you because towards the end of once I moved back from China and I was here and I was really struggling with um, my identity and I was not feeling I wasn't happy. And along the way, I had actually met a few Jehovah's Witnesses. Well, one in particular that was openly gay. Um, and in fact, there was always a joke amongst Jehovah's Witnesses that they call them NPGs, which is non-practicing gays. And that was like, of course, there was a lot of like stigma attached to that. And people would, you know, they would call them that behind their backs. And but I had known one one friend of mine and he was out. He like had come out to his parents and, but without any, I guess, like any designs on ever acting on his sexuality. So he was just a gay person, but like celibate, I guess. And I sat with that for many years. And I realized that for me to be happy, I needed to be honest with myself and honest with others. And so I decided to start talking to people and telling them that I was gay with the intention that I would stay in the organization and just continue doing what I was doing. But at least they would know that this has kind of been my struggle all my life. And I thought that that would help alleviate some of the anxiety and depression I was starting to feel. So I did, I did actually come out to my close friends and I had been forced to come out to three elders around this time as well. So they knew. And I actually came out to my parents, which was the hardest thing, I think, for me, because I didn't know how they were going to react. And I mean, I, I framed it as, look, I have had a same-sex attraction all my life. And I had to explain that, but reassure them that I wasn't going anywhere because that would be worse, I think. And then we never talked about it again. We just kind of like, they never mentioned it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was it. My my mom was very surprised and, and we never talked about it. But I think at that time, it actually made me spiral a little more because now that I was, and I actually, I should say, a lot of my friends were really surprisingly supportive and they said it didn't matter and they didn't care, and et cetera, et cetera. But I quickly found out that once I decided to come out again, because I had to come out again as actually being gay, um, which was incredibly difficult, that I was not, I was going to live as a gay person. And I think that didn't sit well with a lot of them. And they all decided to shun me from then on. Okay. So you had to come out twice. I had to come out twice. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So it, it's interesting because you're, it's more acceptable if you say it kind of in a passive way. But if then there's an action involved that you're going to be living in a particular way, that's when kind of all bets are off and things change. Yes, I actually had to use those words because I was struggling. I, I wrote a letter to my parents to let them know. And at this point, I had already come to grips that this is this organization is a cult. It is not a, it's not healthy. And uh, for many, many reasons, and I think you've interviewed a few ex-Jehovah's Witnesses, and you know they, they go into detail about that, but I felt that it was more important for them not to know my misgivings on the organization, but rather just see me as a person, and I thought that that might help my case in continuing our relationship. So, yeah, so I actually had to write, like, I am going to live as a gay man, and so from then on, things changed pretty rapidly. 
Okay. So I do want to hear about how things changed. I think just to go back to what you just said before about how you're calling it a cult. I know there are people who would argue with that and, you know, we don't have to get mired in, yeah. in the C word, <laughs> so to speak. Um, but from your perspective, yeah, why do you define it in a different way than just a mainstream religion? I think early on, I read Stephen Hassan's book, Combating, I think it's Combating. Combating Cult Mind Control. Mm-hmm. I mean, I sat there some days. I could only get through a couple pages at a time. And I would just sit there rereading the same paragraphs over and over, realizing that what he was describing from a completely different organization was what I was experiencing, which was, you know, the bite model, for instance, um, behavior control. Um, information control, the thought control, and the emotional control, all of those things I can say was happening to me in that. And I think for me, the number one thing was the information control. As a Jehovah's Witness, you're allowed to study and research, but you're not allowed to study anything about Jehovah's Witnesses or the organization from outside perspective. So you, you can't just type in Jehovah's Witnesses on your computer and pull up the first thing that pops up. They're very, very, very adamant that if you want to know something, you have to type in the appropriate channel that they have, the org, you know, .org that they have. Oh, I see. Got it. And anything else is from an apostate is what they will say, who is trying to find and who is trying to talk badly about the organization because they were aligned, they are mentally ill, they are, you know, all the typical tropes. I think that was the biggest thing. I started actually looking at outside material and reading about Jehovah's Witnesses. And I heard about things like the Austra- Australian Royal Commission, which is the trial in Australia right now about uh, the child molestation cases that are happening in Australia. But I had no idea, like witnesses don't know that that's happening. They don't know that the top leaders are on trial and have actually lied under oath about the organizational structure and procedures. And I think that once I saw that, I started to realize how much they controlled the information that came into my head, right? So like even these things like the gay propaganda, anything that normalizes a minority group like the LGBTQ plus community, that would be considered gay propaganda. And so I just realized that like my thoughts and behaviors were being so micromanaged and like even the way I was feeling, I couldn't even feel the way I felt. It's like, it's hard to explain, but I realized that like, yeah, everything was just under, I was under so much control and that control, I mean, ultimately was leading me down a really dark emotional hole where I couldn't handle the pressure of day-to-day activity the witnesses any longer and I couldn't reconcile the fact that I was in fact a gay person but could not be gay unless I left like I had to give up my entire life to be who I am and that was a really hard few months for me and frankly you know it led me to think about suicide which ultimately was a blessing in disguise because it took me to therapy and it helped process some of the things that I was feeling and experiencing and that it wasn't just me it was actually external forces on me okay you know I hear a lot uh, from a lot of people that they think about suicide when they feel there really isn't a way out and sometimes it's also because you hear about what happens to people when they leave and you know that's sometimes used as a kind of fear mechanism and so what kind of things, even though you were kind of struggling inside because you couldn't be yourself, what were some of the things you were told that happens to people who leave the organization? Right. So, I mean, especially the, the way they talk about the gay community is they have a big fear. It stemmed from the, the 80s. I think the AIDS scare in the 80s and 70s through the 90s. Um, but I think that that is still lingering with them. So there's like, open discussions about, you know, if you leave, you'll become drug addicted and, you know, an alcoholic 
and you won't be able to hold a job and you'll be unhappy and you'll get an STD or an unwanted pregnancy or you know, all these things, or it leads to suicide and depression. And I think the sad thing is some people do fall into some of those narratives that leave because, because they're alienated and isolated and alone and don't have the coping skills. They weren't taught skills to manage their mental health. And, and now I see that, but, and yeah, so I, I think those things were, it was a major fear for me. And I had a fear of like the outside world. Like I just didn't understand it. And I didn't know if I fit in that world. And so of course I want to find out about how you feel about that now. And also what happened with your own family and if, you know, you've been shunned and what you found out about your place in the world. So I was very fortunate in that I had a steady job and I had been supporting myself financially, but a lot of witnesses don't have that opportunity because they have spent so much time in the organization giving, you know, preaching or uh, working at different branches. They don't have this job skills or a resume or any way to support themselves. So, and I should say, I, I found a partner very early on in my leaving. And I think that accelerated my understanding of the world and really helped me push through a lot of cognitive dissonance about my own self and sexuality and to accept myself and not immediately feel guilty for, you know, for X, Y, and Z, which was challenging. But yeah, now I, I realize, you know, I still have a feeling of being other, a little bit separate from people because, you know, for anyone that meets me, this is all happening like inside. I'm like, it's still the same person, but I've never celebrated holidays or my own birthday or we never clinked glasses to cheers. Like that was not okay. And so those things I've kind of like had to learn, which has been challenging. Like it's exhausting to have to learn your own culture basically. And it's been fun. So as long as I can be, you know, open and uh, realize that these things aren't going to hurt me or they're not going to cause me to, you know, die in a, some kind of Armageddon. Um, it's okay. A friend told me, you know, as long as you're not hurting anyone or yourself, it's, it's okay. Like <laughs> to try new things and experience different things in life. But so, yeah, I've actually been, um, the happiest I've ever been. Like, I actually feel happy, but then as far as what you lose, cause I do recognize now that freedom comes at a cost. So I, I have lost all of my friends. I think there's maybe one current witness that will talk to me, maybe one or two, but I know they shouldn't, you know, if they want to be a good witness, but overnight. So like just overnight, no one will talk to you or acknowledge you at all. They won't answer your phone calls or your texts. That kind of has been sitting with me recently, but then I guess the hardest part is my relationship with my parents. We were pretty close. Well, we were very close. I considered them friends. We would travel together. And, you know, I spent a lot of time with them. And now I know that, you know, my father won't talk to me. Like our relationship is, unless he changes his mind or has an understanding of what the organization is doing, our, that relationship is over. And my mother and I, we communicate here and there just to check other, but um, I actually just sent her a letter this week, letting her know that I have a boyfriend and that this is what's happening in my life. And it, it took me a year to be able to share that with her. So I don't know if that'll make things worse or better. But yeah, the fortunate thing is my my brothers are both out of the organization and I kind of distanced myself while I was in it. In fact, one I actively shunned for 12 years, hadn't spoken to him until I left last year. Wow. First of all, it sounds very isolating and awful. And and I do know from talking to people who have left organizations like this, when they needed to shun somebody, sometimes they felt very right about it or self-righteous about it. And other times they were conflicted, but they felt like they didn't have a choice. There are a lot of reasons people do it. And sometimes it's under duress and it doesn't reflect how they feel about you. But still, for your life, it leaves a big 
space. I'm wondering about two things just as we finish up. What is the point of shunning? Because I know in different groups, it's for different reasons. Um, and then also, what can people do if people are listening who are a whole variety of different kinds of sexual identifications or gender identifications? And are there groups of people that they can contact who they can connect with and talk to and, you know, to not feel so alone with it? So the first part, what is the shunning about? And then, you know, what can people do if they're listening and they, they're feeling isolated, like you were feeling isolated? So I think shunning for one thing, I think what it does, the stance is that it protects the congregation from unhealthy outside influence. So if somebody, you know, they, they only shun, they say, if somebody is unre an unrepentant sinner. So if that's, you know, they do something once, that might not merit their disfellowshipping. But, you know, if they are a practicing person or, you know, in that act of badness, quote unquote, then um, they need to be removed because they can influence others. And now that you see it as a control group, you see that I think the reason that the witnesses have expanded to 10 million people globally is that they have this really high fine-tuned mechanism of control within the congregation, within their groups, to oust anyone basically that would say anything that differs from the doctrine or from the status quo. Like I said, the, the propaganda. So like they, they view that as undermining effects. Anything that has undermining effect, they will remove them. And it's successful. I mean, it really works. Because people are afraid to talk to them and they're afraid to look at anything outside. So you're, you remain ins insulated. And then as far as communities, you know, that's something I feel like there's something missing there. And actually that's something I've been talking to a friend about is how do we create a safe space for people that want to leave, including young people that don't have skills, job skills, or just want to talk to somebody that's, you know, has the same experience. But I would say there is like an active Reddit community, the XJW Reddit community. It's very supportive. It's a safe space. Um, it's anonymous. And there are people there that, um, myself included, will, will watch out for, you know, or sometimes they'll comment on my strings on leaving the organization as a gay man. And I get a lot of kids on there reaching out and just saying thank you for sharing or is there anyone to talk to? And I, I do know that there is a, a separate channel that people will you know ex extract if there's somebody in need of younger people, I would say. They have two groups and they, they help support non-binary, trans, gay, any, anyone in the LGBTQ plus community that's an ex-witness of all ages. And it's really a place for them to just make friends, express themselves, and support each other. I've seen a lot of kids on there express how they've been feeling depressed or suicidal. And there's always somebody there to kind of help them sharing a suicide hotline or, you know, just talking them through whatever issues they're dealing with. So I would definitely suggest that. Okay. I think it's wonderful that you're involved in that. And I think it really does cut down on suicides and, and tremendous dark depression, feeling alone, isolated. Yeah. I want to thank you. And I am so glad that, you know, you've been able to become you <laughs> and become happy. And, you know, it's an important message when people are so fearful of leaving something to find out it actually can feel better on the other side, even with all the struggles. And I also hope that things are healed between you and your father and any other members of your family. And, you know, it sounds like you're doing your best to just reach out and be there and be welcoming if people kind of come towards you and want to reconnect. So thank you. Thank you very much. And for opening up and now that you're talking more about it to just be a resource and to the community. And it's, I'm sure your voice is having more of an impact than you realize. That's all I would ask for. <laughs> thank you. All right. Well, it's my pleasure to speak with you. Yes. Thank you so much. You're welcome. One more thing before you go. Thank you to Jeff. 
for speaking with us today. His story is so moving. And it happens way too often that people feel at times so backed into a corner that they think the only way out is to end their own lives. I'm so happy that Jeff is free, that Jeff can live his life, and that Jeff wants to be able to help and save others. Before I continue to talk about some of the things that he mentioned, I do want to mention a movie I just saw called Final Account. It's about Nazism and the rise of the Third Reich and how it happened, how the people could get to a point where they saw certain groups of people, including homosexuals, as subhuman and could destroy them like vermin. It is so powerful. And what's incredibly powerful about it is to acknowledge, unfortunately, how easy it is. But you get to see step by step how it happened that people would turn a blind eye to other people's pain or that people would feel they're doing their country a favor by causing death and destruction. And it is a great case study. And the reason it's important is because it's still happening. And so it's something we need to watch out for all the time. I am incredibly moved when I hear about people who've had to live a life in secret. And in fact, I've actually never understood, never understood, when parents decide to disown, to hate, to kick out, and to abandon the children they've had who are wired in a different way than they had wanted, or in a slightly different way than they are supposed to be wired, and that's in air quotes, or wired in a different way than their religion tells them they should be. In cases other than adoption or foster care, those parents who are the biological parents created those children. So if they cannot tolerate what they created, then I think they're really left with two choices. Either they kick themselves out as the creators of something they see as wrong, because if they think there's something wrong with it, then it's quote-unquote their fault, instead of kicking their kids out. Or, now here's a revolutionary idea for some families, the second choice is to accept them and to see all that's good in them and all that's lovable. And if you're a faith-based person, all that's holy in them. And by doing so, these families, these parents, these caregivers actually create three gifts from what I see. The gift of having a happy child. And I know I've heard many times from people raised in some very fundamentalist religions and sects that happiness is actually not necessarily a goal or a value. But I do think it is. So, again, the first gift is of creating a happy child. The second gift is of having a happy family. And the third is the gift to society by sending that happy, accepted, well-adjusted, and confident and loved child out into the world. That only makes society better. 
that only makes the world a happier and better, more productive, more connected place. So this episode is dedicated to those who have been othered, who are seen as other, but really are the same. They are meant to be here. They are pillars of strength and resilience and goodness and understanding. They've experienced pain, and so they're often quite sensitive to other people's. Sometimes they can just even read it in their eyes. And for the people who are injured and scared, just for having been created something that is part of a spectrum of human development, a normal human spectrum, but not somehow still seen as natural, please know that you are always worthy of love, worthy of belonging, and worthy of respect. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.